Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 375th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that charges you $150 for a deck without even taking you out to dinner first. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host is Cliff Daigle, at Word of Commander on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello, everybody. As always, I'm looking forward to diving into a very full week. But before we do, I want to remind listeners that this show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Please sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on a great Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com. Save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Cliff, what is on the agenda this week? We're going to start off with our Metagame Week in Review. We have a Pro Tour to talk about in Standard, no less, then a Modern Challenge to Review, We've got our top movers of the week, and segment three is the online movers. After that, you and I have our cards to watch this week, followed by a doubleheader of a topic. They just decided to throw at us at the end of the Pro Tour that there would be a new uh, setup for Standard, and we have a new Secret Lair to talk about as well. Kicking things off, we'll go right into Pro Tour March of the Machine. This was a mixed draft and Standard tournament that backed kind of the old-school drafting at the table not on arena they did it at uh the big minneapolis event where there was all sorts of other stuff going on and you know it was it was the first time we've got the the a real sense of what putting huey jensen in charge of organized play is likely to mean for magic at least as long as they allow him to run the experiment of doubling back on things right so we right. had standard front and center we had a whole bunch of good high level play by some of the best personalities in the game whole thing was eventually taken down by a nathan stewer um, stoyer stoyer uh yeah odd, odd spelling for that nathan stoyer who is arguably the best player in the world right now based on his results over the last 18 months or so he's just done tremendously well the the last time i remember somebody being so dominant in such a short period of time was the i think back to back to back top eights uh with louis scott vargas like three or four years ago and nathan just looked in completely in control basically through the entire tournament put up a 37 point run and took down fifty thousand prize money on the back of rakdos mid-range and standard using four Invoke, Despair, and two of the new Chandra from March of the Machine, which was absolutely backbreaking when they got to do things like copy it with Chandra. Like, double Invoke you for the game, thank you very much, seemed to happen a lot at these tables. And indeed, there was more of that Rakdos mid-range strategy in second place, although the Kane-Reinhardt list was running three uh, of the... Gix Saga to Atali. So the deck was a little bit, was structured a little bit differently, more of a mid range value build as opposed to the controlish builds that uh, Nathan, Javier Dominguez, Carl Serap, and Simon Nielsen uh, out of Europe were running, where they all had four Invoke and four Fable as well. Fable the Mirror Breaker 
was just as dominant as you would imagine it it would be. Card's an absolute blockbuster super staple in Standard and Pioneer, EDH as well. It was just all over the place. The only other decks in the top eight that were not Rakdos mid-range was Audenburg Jet's third place finish with Orzov Control running two. Breach the Multiverse. And then three, uh, the Wandering Emperor, and three, Sarah Paragon. And then there was... David Olson with five color Atraxa. This is the new Atraxa, obviously, with two Atali and four Invasion of Zendikar as the only battle to really make a splash in the top eight. And then Yaiwen Chen was playing blue white soldiers with two fairy mastermind. Just looking to double check whether he had the blue white battle in his his list as well. It doesn't look like it, no. Uh, the sideboard doesn't have it. It does have uh, three Invasion of Gobakan, the one in a white, look at their hand, gotcha. target spell is now going to cost two more mana to cast, basically. Yeah, the tempo one. Yeah, and uh, that one, if you, you know, you play, if you manage to get something down early, you cast this, and then you smack them around, you know, this is a deck playing Recruitment Officer, Skrelv, like a whole lot of really, really synergistic fun things. And, you know, it's that thing snowballs real quick out of hand. And it did for some of the games that they streamed. It was really impressive. There's a lot of notable matches the weekend. Uh, I watched a Reed Duke winning in that he lost. That was a real close one. And uh, there was a Canadian that uh, managed to make top eight on a last chance qualifier. I think that was uh, David Olson, if I'm not mistaken. And always happy to see a hometown hero as it were from the great white north moving on over to the modern challenge from may 6th we had hardened scales in first online blue red murktide living end in third fifth and sixth big weekend for living end four color omnath in fourth and hammer time in seventh probably the most notable deck here is the eighth place list which was five color domain notably running one invasion of tarkir so you do have these battles seeping into the various constructed formats and i am very curious what else they're going to give us when we get to lord of the rings and beyond that may push battles further into the spotlight well, the first, you know, historically with Wizards, the first time they do something, the first round of them are really, really broken. You know, think of the first set of equipment, the first Planeswalkers that came around. Like, Jace the Mind Sculptor was only, like, the third time they'd released Planeswalkers. So they, you know, they can really overdo it early. I don't get the sense from any of them. You know, I as a Dragon's aficionado, I think that uh, you can always talk me into Evasion of Tarkir being a, an amazing card. It has been already amazing in my Ur-Dragon deck. So I'm really impressed with this deck. Uh, I al always love when somebody's playing Stubborn Denial alongside stuff like Territorial Kavu and Scion of Draco. It's just so money, and it's so hard to mess up with something like that. Indeed. Moving on over to the top paper movers, we'll kick things off with Teferi's Protection Foil Etched of Double Masters 2022. A variety of rare and mythic foil etched cards have been targeted lately on the back of people figuring out that they are a very low drop rate compared to a lot of the other options in that set, given the way that the slots are constructed in the collector boosters. And as a result, we've seen pressure on a 
variety of these foil etched cards. Teferi's protection went 27 to 34, that's 26% gains. Jeskai Ascendancy foil etch went 5 to 10, 100% gains there. And I noticed five or six others. I think Twin Flame was on people's minds with a tally a few weeks back. We also have Magma Opus out of Strixhaven going 3 to $4, just a dollar in gains, 33% on the back of Pioneer Creativity, but could easily be a card to keep an eye on if that deck keeps doing well. We also have Gigantha, uh, Halo Foils, out of the Collector Boosters from March of the Machine. I always want to say Mom of the Machine. (laughs) Mommy issues. 15 to 22, 47% gains uh, on early targeting there. Again, the Halo Foils have a very low drop rate as well. And uh, if there's something, anything consistent between the variety of specs we've seen targeted heavily in the last six months, it is absolutely that they are supply-side plays. Atali Primal Conqueror, on the other hand, is more of a, just a popular card and got featured several times on the Pro Tour where it did back-breaking things off the top deck. It's also the number eight most built commander on EDH Rec right now, so not tremendously surprising to see regular foils go seven to twelve dollars, seventy-one percent gains. It's going to be tough to hold that level uh, heading into summer where standard interest tends to flag, especially right after a standard Pro Tour. But uh, we'll see where that ends up. There may well be a purchase point later in the summer, and I would imagine over in Japan and Europe, it might be even more likely to result in some bargains. Circle of Loyalty, Extended Arts out of El, uh, Throne of Eldrain, a set that we don't see gains from very often, but it does have a bunch of knight cards that are relevant for Zadar Jabari, the second most built commander of the last few weeks. And this one is, you know, a very knight-specific card that just didn't have anywhere to get played for a long time. And now we see Sadar driving the price up from 5 to $10, 100% gains. We've also got Passionate Archaeologist out of Commander Legends Battle for Baldur's Gate. Collector boosters, 6 to $12. Another 100% gainer on the back of Atali, because Atali casts things from Exile, and Passion Archaeologist lets you uh, exile cards and play them for free whenever you do that. I believe that's what that one's all about, if I'm not mistaken. And that's exactly what that is. It's just two mana to give an enormous upgrade to what Atali does. And uh, all of the played-off-the-top cards that go along with it. So it's pretty amazing. Plus... Passionate Archaeologist is just the enchantment that stays in play, and then you cast Atali, Atali will be in play, and you get an immediate trigger, so there's no not a lot of like time in between for shenanigans to happen. And he's an ETB, so if you, you happen to be in some mixed color deck where you're gonna you can blink, recur, bounce, etc. Atali and use it again, then you know, you, people will build can build do things like build Joda ETBs and and get a lot of use out of these two cards together as well. We also got Vampire Hexmage Foils, original copies at a Zendikar, eight to twenty dollars. That's going to be Battles in Modern Aspiring Spike, putting together a whole bunch of lists, and so have some other streamers that were attempting to abuse battles in the format to mixed results. Last week, I called out Talisman of Indulgence Surge Foils from Forty K. Uh, I think the call was six to six or seven to fifteen, and that's pretty much exactly what happened. So, blame that one on the listeners, and let's see if it can hold the fresh plateau as many of the other Surge Foils have, just on the back of relatively low supply and no easy way for vendors to resupply on them. Breach the Multiverse Extended Art again was driven by some Pro Tour hype from a dollar to three dollars. Uh, pretty ridiculous card when it when it is struck off the top into a mixed board state where they're dumping a whole bunch of things in two graveyards and then pulling uh, two cards out and putting them into play. 
Norn's Choir Master Extended Arts, $4 to $12. That is a one commander deck card that only shows up in extended art in the collector boosters. There's been tons of Atraxa builds this spring and winter, poison builds as well, and all of that leans into the choir master where you're getting to proliferate extra times on every turn cycle. Finishing things up, we have Opal Palace Surge Foils at a 40k. Again, Surge Foil targeting been rampant for months, $1.25 to $5 there. And just before I got on cast, there was a pro trader engaging me in the Discord talking about whether or not people should be targeting the Surge Foil sets sealed in the six to $700 range, given how many of the Surge Foils have continued to surge ahem, in price. You couldn't help and it. It's okay. My answer was that if you can sell on direct where you're getting premium pricing, and if you can negotiate maybe a volume discount from a vendor uh, on eBay or Facebook where you're getting, say, $50 off a case or something, then you may well put yourself into a position for 20 to 40% gains over some reasonable period of time. Yeah, the, the surge foiling, the, the whole endeavor with the, the Warhammer 40k decks has really worked out if you had some early, you, you kept what you could. Uh, I know they went back and printed more copies of the regular decks, but the surge foil decks, they did not do that, and so now we're seeing the result of, like you said earlier, a whole lot of lack of supply on these pretty sweet versions of a card as well. A lot of these don't have a lot of uh, of chaseable versions. You know, the Opal Palace does have a borderless foil that you can go get from original Commander Legends, but the Surge foiling just looks so neat and has, you know, specifically different art. All right, moving on over to top Magic Online movers of the week. We've got Chandra Hope's Beacon. Did a whole bunch of work at the Pro Tour, and as a result went... 2.41 ticks to 5.21, 116% gains there. We also had a Tally Primal Conqueror on camera a whole bunch of times and doing very well in the format. 0.77 ticks to 2.67, that's 250% gains for the MTGO engaged speculators who were in on the card early. Biggest gainer of the week by far, though, is Staff of the Storyteller. And this is actually one of the biggest gainers I can recall on Magic Online in a period of time this short. Staff of the Storyteller was a one commander card so because it's on magic online it's only available in treasure chests and it's seeing a whole bunch of legacy play in three or four different decks there's like a shark tornado shark still deck that has four copies of this in the main and there's a few of the other esper brews and jeskai brews that are running it as well it's really cool to have this on board if you've got token generators and a standstill because then your opponent has to force the three-card draw on your side to get out from under your token production. And pretty impressive. If you if you spotted this one early and thought, hey, I'll just put a whole bunch of these away at 50 cents, then you're, you're selling them for a free $25 a pop. That's, uh, that's the kind of thing that'll buy you a nice dinner or two. That's true. Well, if you bought 100 copies, that's $2,500 worth of revenue. A very nice dinner. <laughs> Indeed. Moving on over to cards to watch. I got a couple of early selections, and they may well be early. It's it's hard to say for sure what's going to happen with the top foil extended arts that are commander relevant for sure, and may or may not have a future in Standard and or Pioneer. The two cards on, on my radar that I have tested extensively in EDH, and I'm confident given their ratings on EDH rec that many commander players agree with me uh, as being kind of ubiquitous staples to super staples in their respective colors are tribute to the world tree and city on fire 
Tribute to the World Tree is just a generally good value spell for EDH. It is three green for an enchantment, which is probably the card type that tends to last the longest on board. Not as susceptible as susceptible to sweepers unless somebody fires off a farewell or something. Tribute basically just increases the value of every creature you put into play from then on. In token decks, it's completely ridiculous because if the creature enters the battlefield, you draw a card if the creature's power is three or greater. So if your creatures are small, one ones and two twos, you're putting plus two, plus one, plus one counters on each one, making them huge. If you're playing bigger tokens, you're drawing cards. I'm confused about it because in Ginny Fey, you often are making three one vigilance dogs. And, right. and then you're drawing and that draws you a card. You're drawing cards per dog. And if you have a Mondrock, you're doubling that. It's qu- quite silly. So in Ginny Fey, in Jetmere, in you know, elf token, elf ball token decks and all sorts of green-related token strategies, tribute's just excellent. But it's also good in mid-range decks, where if you're putting in bigger creatures, you know, in a token strategy where they're coming in and their power is being checked against a hardened scales or a doubling season or something like that, an Ozolith, etc. And then you're getting the tribute trigger, and the way that you stack them is gonna is gonna be to draw cards. Then tribute just does tons of work, and the EDH rec stats back it up. Almost ten thousand decks reported already. Seven percent of all greens running it. That means there's tens of thousands of players that are looking to add this to decks. And if you look at their how fast the FEAs are moving, it's a very brisk clip. You're talking five to ten copies every day or two, which is Pretty solid for the best version of the card. They're also only seven bucks. Now, could these get down to four or five dollars and sit there for 24 months? Absolutely. We've seen foil extended art rares that are in this this power band range do exactly that many times. So my strategy with this would be to bite off your first handful at seven and then just watch what happens. If it fades down towards six and down towards five and the inventory starts to fill up and the price starts to drop, then you can just kick back and relax and probably just sit on it for a while, put it on your watch list. And when it gets to your target price, if you think it's going to get to five, you think it's going to get to four, you go ahead and pull the trigger. On the other hand, if it starts to trickle up and the inventory trickles down, then you can bite off some more copies before the, the time runs out. This is the kind of rare that could end up being $15, $20, $25 down the road pretty easily. It's nothing, it's not a Shadow Spear, it's not an Underworld Breach. The drop rate on these is probably higher overall, and the print runs might be larger as well than the stuff from a few years back. But it's also that good of a card in the format in question. And if there ends up being a green deck that wants to run four of these in standard, now that standard is a longer a longer period format, which may encourage more people to play then you could get some additional flotation there so your initial uh disclaimer about this being early is my primary objection this is a card that's uh was released four months ago give or take you know it, it was no oh, last month. march of the machine this is not from one. Oh, that's from last month oh it's uh james i'm i'm sorry i got mixed up uh yeah this is way too early buddy i'm sorry i i see where you're coming from it's an awesome card I have a soft spot for any green enchantment that lets you do what green wants to do, and that is play big creatures, draw more cards, just exhaust your opponents with so much advantage on the thing. But this is much earlier than I'd want to make this move. Uh, You're right that a lot is selling. Um, People are consistently taking swipes at basically any copy under $10. 
I see a lot of like eights and nines that have sold as well. There are no enormous walls on TCG for near mint foils of this. There's a couple approaching 20. Uh, one person's got 26, but that's at $17. It doesn't really matter as much. I just, I can't, this one and, and your next pick as well, the City on Fire. We, I, I've, I've been burned too often to want to move into any copies quite yet. If you wanted to talk to me in another three months, like at, around the time of Commander Masters, when the attention has moved on and the gaming company has had a chance to move in on somebody's, you know, thousands of boxes and just do a mm, see, giant mass crack. See, I think that's probably a mistake. Since Brothers War, we have not seen the price collapse on CBs. Bro no. CBs are still holding a, a tight, high price point. Wizards has dialed, looks, seems to have dialed back on the production. And, we will and, see about And as that, a result, there, I'm not hearing, I mean, I talk to big vendors all the time. I'm not hearing rumors of big pallets floating around with looking for a home. The That doesn't mean that TGC won't post 50 copies of one of these down the road and that that will act as an anchor. But these could float up to a to a 10 to $15 price point in the interim. Or they could float down a couple of bucks. But I think the upside is bigger than the downside, which is why I'm saying I'm going to bite off a handful now and then set my mind to tracking to see which way we're headed. When we talk about, I can see that. When we talk but, about, and I agree with, uh, hold on, let me let me just say that I do agree with the the end price. I just don't agree with when I want to get in on this on the card. So if we I look, think that sometime in the, in the next eighteen months, this is definitely going to be a sixteen dollar foil. I just don't think I want to get in on it right now. I want to give it a chance to settle down more. One trap people can fall into is comparing this to cards from that two, three, four year ago era. So if we look at something like Dryad of the Elysian Grove Extended Art Foils, they only ever got down to mid thirties or so in April of 2020 after they'd been released. And by September of that year, they were $75 for a rare foil, foil extended art, mostly in the back of a lot of amulet Titan play and modern, I believe backed right. with, with additional EDH play since September of 2021. Those have done nothing but slide, and they're basically back where they started. Now, there was some reprints along the way there because they got secret layer a secret layer version that had even sexier art. Um, but if we look at something like Dominaria United, another big release set from last fall, now, what, eight months old or whatever, mostly dominated by you hoping you pull a shieldred out of those packs. But if we look at an extended art rare of note. The card to check would be Leyline Binding. And if we look at Leyline Binding, Foil Extended Art, eight months out, $17 down to 44 listings. Now, this is a card that's a four of in standard. It's a it's a four of in many Pioneer decks. It sees play in modern. It sees play in EDH. So is it a bigger staple than Tribute to the World Tree and City on Fire? I think you have to say it is because it has that true multi-format support. But it does say that in a heavily printed standard set, a foil extended art rare in that situation can get to almost $20. And that one started, if we look at the, its low point was close to about 13 And it never got below, it never got below that. How long after release was that 13 So it got down to 13 about five months after release. 
I, that's the 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 time frame I'd be more comfortable at. I think I think there's a good chance that you're exactly right that this has the chops. I, I'm not arguing the power level or the ability. I'm just saying that there's enough being opened right now that I want to be more patient. Yeah. So the standard advice that I think we're both agreed on is that you wait till peak supply, and if you wait till peak supply on this card, it may well get down to four or five dollars. My caveat, that seems reasonable. my caveat is it's the top EDH card, EDH rare in the set. And it's so ubiquitous and taking off so fast. It's putting up really, really big numbers. And when Shadow Spear did that, for instance, and keep in mind that was a lower drop rate overall, the, you know, that became a $60, $70, foil extended art rare as well. Right. Because when Shadow Spear is played in modern, which it is plenty, in Hammer Time and stuff, they only run one copy. It's not like it had they four. Might not, they might not even want the uh, the foil versions. Some uh, some competitive players really uh, don't want to play foils. Yeah. So anyway, tribute seven. But if you're critical, if of the timeline like Cliff is, wait for four or five, and you're probably looking at mid late summer as your entry. You might get a chance to wait a year from now for an entry. That's also true if, if you're patient, because it could get to that price point and then stall there for a while. City on Fire is kind of the same deal. It's not the top EDH card. It's in the top 10. It's in 6,000 decks, not 10,000 like Tribute. 4% of all red decks, not 7 like Tribute. But it should really probably be in more red decks because it triples all your damage. It's an extremely good card. I'm not. I, again, I, I believe in the power level of the card, and we have a comparison to make in... Uh, what was the mythic version of this called again? Fiery Emancipation, Fiery which made me tons of money. Right. So I, I agree with all of that, but it, it is notable that Emancipation was a mythic. This yep. is a rare. And it was a mythic in so, a summer set. And these sets, uh, your information source is indicating these are selling very well, correct? Like uh, March of the Machine and All Will Be One. Definitely. Very well designed, kicking a lot of butt, selling a lot of packs. Definitely. All right. Good to know. Good to know. I like that you had a theme with your picks this week because I really did too. All right. Hit me with yours. My theme this week is that, uh, as we're going to talk about in a moment, uh, we've got an extra year coming on standard. They have said that everything that was going to rotate in this coming September, October, is now going to rotate in September, October of 2024. That means that what you're dealing with now, you're going to be dealing with for another year. And my picks this week focus really on... Uh, well, actually, one of them does. They're both lands. One is just good, and the other is a standard land. I think Xander's Lounge is due to increase in price. We've got an extra year to go up. And uh, Rakdos, it, as we've just established, like Rakdos just put four people into the top eight of a Pro Tour. The team handshake was kicking ass all over the place. Nathan lost two rounds in standard to his teammates playing almost the exact same 75. I think that most standard lands are going to have a minor bump, but Xander's Lounge being the tri-land for Grixis colors, so black, red, and blue, allows uh, the Rakdos decks to splash into blue pretty easily. It's already fairly popular at $8 for regular copies, and I think it'll bump up to a nice little 14 sometime over the next 6 to 12 months. You've got me wondering whether people are going to pair Fairy Mastermind to make people draw with Shieldred. Sure. That seems fun. I would, pr- I would try that. So the, the tri-lines I, are very good. 
one of the things with the standard um, being extended that we'll, we'll talk about in more depth in a few minutes is that it increases, heightens the chances of uh, key cards getting banned if the format gets stilted. Because if you extend the format, you got to keep the format fresh. Sets like Aftermath are in part designed to do that, although looking at Aftermath, it's confusing because that set looks like it's cleanly designed for EDH, not for standard. I was going to say it's all commander goodness. So hopefully that will not be true of the future Aftermath style products. Uh, You really need those mini sets to address gaps in decks that are tier two and three, same as Modern Horizons 2 did for a bunch of decks in Modern. And that really kickstarted a renaissance in deck building, where now you have at least 30 viable builds in Modern that are in one of the most varied and skill-testing formats we've ever had. So if you want Standard to get anywhere near that level, then you need to inject all sorts of little tidbits so people can play fringy decks and bring them into the fold. The great thing about lands, like Xander's Lounge, is that there's no way they're getting banned. They don't ban mana-producing lands because they are not the kind of problems in the format that will ever get addressed in that way. You know, usually if there's a problem with mana bases in a format, it means that you've got lands that support certain certain color combinations but not others. And the solution to that is to make sure that you print their uh, partnered lands. If If you had access to allied and you need enemy or vice versa... But something like Lounge, you're absolutely right. It's got it's under constant pressure in EDH. And right. the only question is whether you're going to start to see cards like this reprinted in standard sets while they are still in print in another standard set. Don't you dare take away one of my talking points for after we're done with our cards to watch. Right. Don't you dare say All right, so that was Xander's Lounge. I had that, that, is, that is on my list of things to bring up is standard reprinting into standard. Sure. So you're thinking 8 to 14 on Xander's Lounge. I'm thinking that. And then uh, my other land this week is Sulphur Falls because the retro foils out of Dominaria Remastered, they're down to five bucks on a retro foil. It's in 131,000 commander decks. It's super popular and constructed, whether you're talking Pioneer, Modern. Uh, this is the only really special version. And there are only 75 vendors. Nobody has a big wall of this. It is due to pop. I'm calling it five to 12 over the next 18 months. And honestly, 12 feels a little low. I don't think I knew this card existed. <laughs> is it a four of in blue? Not not the card Sulphur Falls, but that there was a retro version in Dominaria Remastered. DMR is one of the only sets in, I don't know, the last decade I haven't opened myself because I flipped my cases instantly for profit, so I never actually got to open any. The OBFs are f- under five bucks for this, huh? And what kind of sales clip are we looking at? Foils are like onesie twosie per day. So like tribute foils sell five times faster than this do. Well, tribute is also a card that's been out for a month. Yeah, that that does make a difference. But I guess my question is who is who is reaching out to buy these? We're thinking it's blue red Merktide players? I'm thinking it's anybody who wants a special version of one of the best blue red duels. Like the these buddy lands, these are super staples. And many of the Buddy Lands have different special versions. And in the case of Sulphur Falls, this is it. You know, there was original Innistrad copies. This was in Dominaria. It was in the coin flip deck. 
but the only different frame is this old border frame and it is available in foil for under five bucks whereas the original Innistrad foils are like eight nine dollars depending on condition now that i've looked over the blue red murktide list i'm even more concerned they don't even run this card they, they're on Flooded Strand, Polluted Delta, Scalding Turn, Spire Bluff Canal, which basically replaced Sulphur Falls, Scalding Turn, Misty Rainforest, Steam Vents, Fiber Islet, Three Island, and an Ottawara. So is there a modern deck that runs Sulphur Falls? I, you know what? I actually did not double check that. Let me look real quick in the top eight. I'm definitely not seeing... It's not in Living End. I'm trying to think of what other decks might even run it. Four Color Omnath probably can't afford it because it requires islands and mountains in play. So yeah, I mean this 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 looks pri- other, yeah. this looks primarily like a QBDH play to me. So I would expect this to drain out slowly, uh, but steadily. But unless somebody makes a run on these, I don't see any particular impetus for people to be reaching for this card at this particular moment in time. If we're looking at the top commanders of the last month, oh, you're right. Sulfur Falls has only been in a couple of small modern events and none in the last few months. We currently do not have a blue-red commander in the top 20, which is pretty relevant. You have Omnath, Locus of All in third, but I don't think you can run Falls in there. You have Ur-Dragon in sixth, ditto. I don't think you, I'm guessing you don't run that in your deck. I don't run Sulphur Falls in Jota the Unifier. Miriam, no, Sentinel uh, my... Worm, maybe. Maybe. You know, you'd want anything that's red and, and can tap for other colors. But what you really want is but... for, like... St. Traft, the deck I'm running and freshly built, uh, it's a very powerful token build to want this card. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I think this is a long-term hold. I mean, I think I didn't even know this card existed. I haven't heard anybody talk about it. I don't see any particular <laughs> impetus to be chasing it. But okay, it has big stats on, ED, in, on ADH rec. So, you know, the, the market is there. I just think they're going to drain it quick, relatively slowly. On the plus side... They have no reason to reprint this anywhere else now that they just reprinted it. So this could go three to five years without a reprint. I don't think it'll go that long. What are original Sulphur Falls foils going for? Original from Innistrad are going for $8. See, that's still pretty low for original printing. Let's see. Is that for damaged foils according to this? No, that's near mint foils are under 8 bucks. I I, I mean, I think if this was a blue-red Merktide 4 of, I would feel differently because it would just, it would catapult it. Because retro foils are, you know, lots of modern players play non-foil, but there are definitely people that bling out their decks in modern. Yeah, there's only 14 vendors with near-mint foils for original Innistrad, but you're right. That is slightly concerning. I recognize at least two pro traders among these people, too. Put it this way, I have a feeling Xander's Lounge has a much greater chance of taking off faster. Well, yeah, but I like I said, that's because I think that uh, Standard has... Uh, now that we have an extra year to go, Standard has a lot of a, a possibility, and the lands are the easiest thing to get in on if they don't reprint the lands, if we want to bring that topic up now, if we're ready to move on. Yeah, let's talk about Standard. So it's re- right. really straightforward. We've already kind of <laughs> made the point three early, or four times, er- yeah. earlier in the cast. Standard is going to be longer. I mean, there was uh, at one point they actually tried to make it shorter. Right, the so, eighteen month the rotation every so there'd be a rotation with every set, and people got pissy immediately because they didn't want their standard cards pissy. to to be unplayable, because it effectively increases the cost of play by ensuring that your deck 
is irrelevant faster and you've got to buy fresh cards. Now, the problem with that is, what, no matter how long rotation is, there's no guarantee that the meta is going to be stilted. But right. if the meta is stilted, if, for instance, black-red mid-range does the same thing it's doing in Pioneer, where it's you know 20 to 40% of any given top eight on any given weekend, and that goes on for a long, long time, if there are six to eight viable decks in the format, you're probably doing fine. If you end up in the position where they were during Theros block, where it was basically mono blue against mono black, and those were the only two viable decks, then no one's going to play. You've still got COVID concerns lingering in the shadows. You've got Arena drawing away a lot of the standard action. Because it's if you draft a lot on Arena, standard is basically free. So, Basically, yes. So, if, as long as you're a decent drafter. And so, we don't see a lot of standard-related spikes that don't ha- also have an EDH backing. Like, there are very, very, very few cards on our top movers list from the last year that moved as a result of standard play without play anywhere else. It happens... But not all that often. If you look at something like the the price line on something like wedding announcement from the last Innistrad block, the right. constant presence of mono white decks in standard has kept that at some kind of reasonable price level. Just taking a look now to see what that trajectory looked like. So that was a Crimson Vow rare. And if we look at the non-foil, it got down to a dollar forty, and peaked at eleven or so twice last October and just recently in April. So it can happen, but it's not like it was ten years ago where standard was driving the was driving the truck. Right now. It does open up all sorts of other random possibilities, right? Like we talked earlier about them double printing a card in the standard, say 18 or 30 months apart or something like that. Say halfway <clears> through, <throat> do something like the, uh, what were they called? There was uh, there was the time where they printed actual standard decks and you could add cards right about the time Stoneforge Mystic got banned from standard. That was a long time ago. Like, like if they printed an Aftermath Mythic, the set doesn't sell that well. The mythic becomes a big deal in standard six months later. That card's going to skyrocket. Right. And they might have a reason to reprint it. Now, if it's thematically troublesome, they could reprint it in a secret layer. If it's ubiquitous, like something like a fatal push, and they want to put that back in a standard, they could do it and then do it again 30 months later, knowing it's going to rotate if they think it occupies an important... Uh, role in the format they're trying to craft. Now, they could also change their minds here, right? Like, this this is kind of like, feels like an experiment they're running. Like, they hired Huey Jensen. They said, here's your budget. Here's your objectives. You've got to hit these milestones to justify the spend that we're, we're recommitting. And I don't think anything is certain for the future. They could pull back on competitive play again if they don't think it's producing. Do you remember how long it took them to reconsider the 18-month, uh, the, the last time they tried to change the rotation in standard? I think it was a pretty fast turnaround, less than a year. 
before they changed their minds on Much it. less. They, I don't think they even got to one rotation on that before they decided that they weren't going to do that. Yeah. So if there was an enormous amount of pushback on this, then I would not I would not be surprised to hear that they changed their mind, you know, two months from now, five months from now, something like that. Now the alternative is that when there's a card that they neither ban nor reprint, and it's a persistent four of in that format, and it's a multi-format staple, like say Shield or the Apocalypse. Back in November, I wrote a best ideas segment for the Discord where I said, Shouldered is probably the next Meat Hook Massacre. You're going to pick it up now in the mid-40s, and you're going to sell it in the 60s to low 70s when we get to the springtime. Because it's a fall mythic, pretty much the same as Meat Hook was. It's got a lot of the same play patterns, played in the same way, in the same formats, to pretty much the same kind of extent. And as a result, you should probably be looking to get in and get out. Indeed, that was fairly uh, prescient information because Shield of the Apocalypse market price is currently $74 on TCG Player. That's pretty wild for an imprint mythic. So it has kind of done that exact thing. Now, did we, we did get a couple of extra copies in uh, March of the Machine, correct? But not, a, not very many. Uh, the apocalypse no no in one it was in one it was just in the the uh what were they calling that frame with like the white the show there was a no uh concept art concept art predators concept thank you in in one in in march of the machine it was whispering one and the new children so shoulder the apocalypse we got the call and the timeline right mid 40s to high 60s low 70s i think on the floor at the pro tour they were some vendors were paying 60 bucks cash pretty impressive and the question then becomes is it too ubiquitous and standard given that they're not going to rotate anything this fall to the point where not not that it would have rotated anyway it's still in its first year it it would have to say it, it was definitely not due so it's got 18 months it will be part, I believe, of the next rotation. So, uh, Dominary United will be le- rotating out in 2025. <laughs> yeah. So, Shieldred could get catch a ban. Like, Meat Hook I feel did. like it has to get a ban or a reprint. One of those two things has and the, to and happen. Yeah, and that becomes the, the fulcrum of specs related to standard. You've got the overhanging issue of are enough people playing standard in paper? If you believe that that's true, then you have the question of are these multi-format staples that are driven by four of play in standard plus pioneer going to get banned or are they going to get reprinted? Uh, in the case of Shieldred, I've been selling. Like I, I bought Shieldreds when I wanted to buy them. They hit the price point I wanted to hit in the time frame I wanted. Meat Hook eventually caught bannings and went down. I don't want to be in that boat. So Shieldred could be a ninety to hundred dollar mythic this fall, or she could catch a ban in standard. If you were asking for bets, what would I bet on? The reprint or the ban? I feel like the reprint would come before the ban did. I, I'm the opposite. I think the ban comes before the reprint. <clears throat> They've already given okay. us extra copies in a set right like two sets after its original printing. So it, it got reprinted within six months. Right. It's very pricey, but there aren't good places to repl- to reprint it. Like you're not going to see it in Commander Ma- in in Commander Masters. You're not going to see it in Doctor Who. You're not going to see it in 
the wilds of Eldraine. It could end up in some kind of uh, special sheet set, you know, like a subset. Right. If they do like villains right. of the multiverse or something, then you could see it again in something like that 12, mo- 12 months out. They could even do something wild like uh, they're testing out this Aftermath, right? Which is the tiny set. It's only 60 cards, 65 cards total. No, uh, 70 cards, I believe. 15, 20, and something like that. I forget how many. I just wrote the article on the math of it. I should remember. But this tiny set is also a test for what they can do with Standard. And I would not be shocked if every summer had the, you know, this was printed 18 months ago and we've determined we need more copies of this in the market. Because if you were selling packs that had a $70 Shieldred in it, you would sell a lot of those packs. So having access to something like that, I don't know that they'll use the exact same March of the Machine Aftermath model, but some kind of standard, uh, what's the word I want? Standard Masters? Yeah, I could totally yeah, see that. that. That's a possibility. There's also the, there also is another avenue of approach for these kind of situations. If they are looking to craft standard, and if things like Aftermath are part of that puzzle, and if things like Aftermath are going to operate on a shorter production timeline so that they can be nimble in addressing standard without leaning too heavily on bannings, they can just print cards that are counter. So they could print a good white two-drop or something that eliminates the uh, abilities of creatures that are three or greater you know what i'm saying like they can they can just print mm-hmm. foil cards they can they can be more reactive to an environment yeah so they, they can just go okay we need these are like we've got fable we've got shieldred we've got this other thing and the best reactive cards like that in a meta are the ones that are good in general but right. but also just happen to kneecap some important card in the format that costs more than they do right so you can get in under a shouldered with something that they have to kill or shoulder is not going to do which is just going to be a four or five for four so i would imagine that there will be a combination of these all of these elements you're going to see some reprinting scenarios you're going to see some bands you're going to see some cards printed to counter other cards and it's going to make the standard spec landscape significantly more interesting than it was 10 minutes ago so my general rule uh now that standard is back ish is that i would i would be planning for around one year after release unless you were talking like the summer set because the summer set was only legal for 18 months uh or yeah around 18 months so i would always plan for around a year later i'm getting in around five six months after it came out i'm planning on selling out within six to eight months of any purchases I made for standard. Or or you're buying and, opening weekend because a lot of the cards that end up being big multi-format staples are underestimated. Right. right? Like Breach the Multiverse went from a dollar to four dollars because people thought it was bulk. It it was bulk. I mean <laughs> I don't know what else you want me to say. But this is this is the first time in a while too we've had a big event in standard that camera time made a huge difference. It worked that way with Atali as well and Breach the Multiverse People said, holy snap, those are amazing cards. I want to play that deck. That looks like a lot of fun to do. And having a slick, well-produced, well-narrated stream that did a lot of work. I mean, 
you mentioned that Huey was in charge of things, and I think this really shows what magic's capable of. It's not going to be huge numbers in terms of, you know, how many viewers it gets, but I think that when we look at the effect it has on prices, we can see that viewership might not be the immediate Twitch numbers, but it definitely has a spike in certain interesting cards. And that's a, a figure I imagine Wizards pays attention to as well. Brian Kibler was on Twitter today talking about how watching the Pro Tour put the fire back in his belly and he was looking to rejoin the Crusade to pursue high-level play. So, I mean, it matters. You know, he, lots of us have always said that the Pro Tour matters, and I've always thought it was a worthwhile loss leader. When they talked about the low, like, number of millions they had to spend on this tour yeah it's not it's not chump change it's real money but it's also real money in a billion dollar game and if you want to grow that billion dollar game this is kind of the bare minimum you need to do the dream of being a massive esport that breaks the boundaries down of between tcgs and video games and like <laughs> and and competes against ea and blizzard etc directly that's i think pretty obvious hasbro doesn't have it in them but the dream of solid single digit percentage player growth should not be a dead one like that that's the 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 next plateau is firmly rooted in event and media budgets it's advertising budgets it's event budgets and it's content budgets you know a lot of the best content for magic is being made by other people and wizards hasbro seems to be very piggish about getting away with that like if they don't have to command zone does so much work for them they figure that maybe they don't need the netflix show but i think they've got, they've got that wrong you want to hit you want people <laughs> to trip over your brand more frequently you want the netflix show you want a live action movie you want video games you want arena you do not want magic online get rid of that trash and you want various incarnations of the physical product you, you want an ecosystem that, that, that is how you get to the next plateau. Backing up, up on all that is not how you get to the next plateau. So I agree with you on that. Moving along, they also uh, revealed at the Pro Tour that there was going to be a new secret layer deck that was put up for sale at noon today, Monday. Today. And the deck is called From Cute to Brute. And it focuses, its cute little theme is cards that flip from cute things to mean things. Which seems kind of like a stretch, given the cards selected. It's Eska, God of the Tree, that flips into Prismatic Bridge. Archangel Avacyn, that flips into Avacyn the Purifier. Bloodline Keeper, that flips into Lord of Lineage. Nicol Bolas the Ravager, flipping into Nicol Bolas the Arisen. Westvale Alley, Abbey, flipping into Ormondal, Profane Prince. And then 42 double-faced reprints, including a whole bunch of the Zendikar uh, flip mythic lands, except notably not Agadim's Awakening and not Seagate Restoration. 53 single-faced reprints and 15 double-faced tokens and those five uh, new art flip display cards. The tricky part here is when they did the uh, coin flip deck a year prior, that was a year late being delivered, they charged $100, and they ended up selling for closer to 200 on the open market when they finally landed. This time around, they have, as they tend to do, noticed that they left money on the table, so they're charging, they want 150 for the deck instead of 100 
Thing is, this deck is less exciting overall than the coin flip deck in terms of the theme being something that people can easily connect to. The other one was very much a meme deck. You know, coin flips is very meme But the art, as presented, was very engaging. And I think even just the basic lands in that that deck ended up going for big money. Right. Like, not $4. It was like 15 or 20 or something, or 30 Uh for the island and, and the and the mountain, respectively. I'm less confident that this deck can do it. They were making a, a point of uh, what they called a limited print run for these. But the thing is, this went up for sale at noon, and 12 hours later, you can still buy, put five copies in your cart. There was a wait list for the first five minutes after the release where you had to like wait to get to your checkout. But by the time I got to it 45 minutes later, it was instantaneous. So that says to me that a bunch of vendors hopped on and got their units pretty pretty quickly, and then demand fell off a cliff. And if these are going to sit around on the Secret Layer website for a while, then it's going to be tough to make money on them at 150 Because 150 plus taxes, like this has to turn into a $250 deck. Uh, I have a lot easier time believing this is going to be a $189 deck on TCG Player. And that the direct people are going to get away with two hundred nine ninety nine or something. That sounds about right. I mean the the comparisons are there to the flip deck. The flip deck had a lot more foils. This is all non foils that are uh, except for the five brand new arts. Yep. And the new arts are neat, but like none of these were super pricey cards to begin with. A lot of the coin flip cards had already been expensive. I think the only one that's even close to expensive was the Bloodline Keeper, and that was because it had not had any kind of significant reprint until uh, it was in from the Vault Transform. So this is a, a setup where, like you said, they, they said, I left money on the table. I don't want to leave money on the table again. Which is worse for them, leaving money on the table... You'd be more enthused about this if it was $100, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. At 100 I could believe it could hit a 155 or 160 relatively easily. It's uh, right. it's a tougher sell at the at the higher price point. The There is the question of what the bonus will be. And these are supposed to ship pretty much right away. Like, they, they said that they're not going to repeat the debacle of the coin flip deck where it took a year. It's going to be, like, within the month these will be shipped out. And it just so happens that you can order these along with the super drop that's currently live and combine shipping because these are pre-printed, mm-hmm. right? Um, when they right. say limited edition, it means that they saw how much the coin flip sold. They probably added another like 33. Like if the coin flip was 10,000 units, they bumped it up to 15 or 20,000. And we were looking at order numbers, comparing order numbers in the Discord earlier today. And if those mean anything, and it's not 100% clear that they do, because it would have been, it's possible that's mixed in with the super drop orders from the day. Uh, it looked like it could have been something like twenty or twenty five thousand orders during that period. Now, how many of those were just this deck? That remains to be seen. But I could easily be convinced that there are ten to twenty five thousand units of this that will be in the market. Which I think is, you know, given that it hasn't sold out yet, the demand doesn't seem to be there to support that necessarily. And so I would expect a relatively minor markup. I had four in my cart. I went down to one in my final accounting and really just bought one for science. So it would motivate me to stay on top of it. 
And then I doubled back to the spring <laughs> super drop and took a harder look at the March of the Machine bundle. Because those three drops are all an extension of the mom multiverse legends frames that were developed for the special cards out of those collector boosters applied to 15 cards from a bunch of different plans. They only come in halo foil. There is no non-foil version, which I think narrows the overall vendor interest because if you're a vendor in say the Midwest in a small town and you have trouble moving premium cards and foils, you may not want these on hand. And so it's debatable how much of these will total will sell some total but if you get the bundle, you get all 15 cards plus whatever bonuses they're going to come with, presumably three bonuses, one of which might be relevant. Right. Who knows? Maybe you, you pull one of the, the latest Shadowborn Apostles or whatever, although the drop rates on those are pretty low. And you're getting 15 cards minimum plus bonuses for 129 which is effectively 14% off. So instead of, and these were priced premium, they were priced at 50 not 40 like a foil bundle, a foil drop usually would be. So you're really paying... 43 so you're, you're kind of getting halo foil for three dollars above regular foil and the cards involved are are pretty solid i mean you have if we look at and this is this is meaningful because pre-sales that are going on on tcg player right now are not actually pre-sale because they were ready to ship these within 24 hours of the initial launch so we have protators right. that have already flipped out of this product and looking at the Halo foils that are available in that bundle, the current market prices, and keep in mind this is absolutely asterisked by first mover advantage because these prices are going to fall as more inventory is received. But Walking Ballista is the top Halo foil so far in the Kaladesh, Kaladesh Invention frame at in the mid-30s. You have Hagere, the Stillwind in the Kamigawa frame at low 30s. You have Udvara Hellkite in the high 20s. In the Ravnica frame, which is quite nice actually. Nyx Bloom Ancient Halo Foils above 20 as well. And Xantia Sleeper Agent and Coligan are in the $18, $19 range. Mina and Dan Wildborn is near to 18. Ne- Nezahal Primal Tide Halo Foils are at 17. Questing Beast is at 16. You have to get down to Kogla the Titanate before you hit below 10. What that tells me is that there is probably at least a break even pretty much guaranteed on these bundles where you're going to be able to the people that moved the fastest can get out with 30 or 40 percent gains or they keep some cards that they want for their collection and get out clean on the rest and the people that get in later probably have more like 10 to 15 percent gains after fees and so forth but if they hold for the longer term they may do better because halo foils look very good in person it kind of depends which frame they're applied to and, and certainly uh, the quality assurance has something to say about it because I got all sorts of weird misprints in, <laughs> in my mom CVs, that's for sure. But this is a pretty solid group of cards to get in a bundle. One of the problems with the, the secret layer super drop bundles is often that you're forced to take one or two drops that are likely to be stinkers, and that challenges the 14%. Because, okay, you're getting 14 or 15 or 16% off, depending on which, which super drop you're talking about. But... If you, can, if you can't sell one or two of the bundles for more than you paid for them, or you're forced to hold them for four years or something, then did you really save anything? It's kind of like, you know, you, you got a freebie that, that's dead weight. So unless you want that for your personal collection, it doesn't really get you anywhere. 
as you and I have discussed before, the best super drop situation was the one where you could put together whatever you wanted. And if you spent more than a certain amount, you got the Scarab God or the one where beyond a certain amount, you got 18% off or whatever. That was, you know, a dream scenario because you just picked, <laughs> cherry picked the best of the bunch. And I'm sure that the reason we haven't got that since is that that resulted in only the best drops selling very well. Right. It was when you was build your own bundle, you were allowed to save your own money. But when we look at EDH and cube demand for these cards in this bundle, it's a bunch of good stuff. Walking Ballista Higuri, Edvera Hellkite, Nyx Bloom, uh, Zancha, Dragonload Colligan, Minna and Den, Nezahal, Questing Beast, Olivia Vadaren, uh, Joyra, Weatherlight Captain, The World Tree. It's solid. So I think I, I got four or six of those. I can't remember exactly how many. And then the only other one I dipped into was the cool Ocean is a Cool Breeze or something. Cool Ocean Breeze. This is the one with Thassa's Oracle, uh, Borderless Foils, and Thassa Deep Dwelling, which combined are selling for more than the price of the drop at present. And the Rebecca Gway foil that has Stoneforge, Mystic, and Sarah the Benevolent, which are likewise selling for more than the price of the drop. So I got some of those two and the bundle and called it a day. That seems pretty straightforward. I mean, it's hard to argue with uh, Thoracle at a foil Thoracle at $39 in a special frame. You know, the and you've, the wonderful thing about this is people have 48 days left on the assorted drops that aren't the Commander deck. The Commander deck doesn't have a timeline on it, correct? Well, I'm, I would imagine it's until it sells out. And it, had it sold out today, they would have had a cool story to tell. But now it's just probably going to sit around on the site until they decide it's embarrassing to leave it there. That does seem like the most likely outcome. So you've still got time to make your decisions. And like you said, the people who ordered right away are reselling on TCG Player and reaping a nice percentage gain on that. I need to try and be more on top of the the secret layers when they first come out. I tend to be like a wait and think because I always want all the shiny things. So I give myself a moment and that I'm clearly giving myself too many moments. Yeah, I mean, given that there's 48 days left, if you don't intend to sense, sell soon, there is zero rush. Like, go ahead and take the yeah. full time. There's no reason to give them your money and start paying interest on your credit card ahead of time. Um, in my case, I'm gonna, I happen to have an, like an import scheduled where these will end up in my hands in time to sell into early pricing, I suspect. But the, you know, if you're looking to hold these for a year or two, then you know, take your full time. It's also worth noting that they have slowed down the pace of super drops for a while we were getting them every six weeks or so but this one's already been this one's already been up for like a month or something and it's got 48 days left so this was like this seems like it's sitting around on a full two month or two and a half month thing and i would imagine we will get something else post the or somewhere around the release of lord of the rings let's see where did we talk about the last uh which was it the last Secret layer drop. I believe that was two weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. Because we got the the new secret layer, the Aftermath Leaks, and the Pinkerton Saga. So then two weeks. For, so these these are up for like two months at a time, thankfully. And we're not all feeling like there is a direct IV line from our wallets to their secret layer drops. So if you look at 48 days, it's almost exactly when the... Like June 23rd is the release date for the for Lord of the Rings. So I would expect that we're going to get related a related drop around that time. Speaking of which, at the Pro Tour, they did show off some tidbits. 
So one thing they explained was we knew that the One Ring was a big card in the Lord of the Rings set. There's a one of one available that's expected to potentially be a million dollar magic card. Uh, at minimum, it's probably going to be fifty to a hundred thousand. They there were some cards revealed that referred to the ring tempting you, but they didn't fully explain the mechanics. So they finally did that this weekend. It turns out that as the ring tempts you, you get an emblem emblem named the ring if you don't have one. So that emblem is not the one ring card, which is going to be confusing to some people. They are different things. Very. And, and also, I had to go back and check because I assumed, I was like, oh, well, then the one ring must tempt you. But it doesn't. It actually does not. Which is odd to me. Like, why didn't they tie those things together? <laughs> that seems like the most obvious mechanical approach to this whole thing. Uh, so you get the emblem the first time you're tempted, then your emblem gains its next ability and you choose a creature you control to become or remain your ring bearer. The rules are the ring can tempt you even if you don't control a creature. The ring gains its abilities in order from top to bottom. Once it gains an ability, it has that ability for the rest of the game. Each time the ring tempts you, you must choose a creature if you control one and each player can have only one emblem named the ring and only one ring bearer at a time. The ring itself gaining those abilities is actually a lot... The closest analog in the game is dungeons. Because this is is functionally very similar. You don't have multiple paths. You have a single path. And it's kind of just like a compressed dungeon. It looks like a fixed dungeon mechanic to me. Because I thought... I find in EDH those dungeons are distracting and very finicky. And trying to prevent the initiative player from constantly traipsing through them ends up being a huge drag on t- on attention and resources. So this is, these are the powers of the ring. The first one is your ring bearer is legendary and can't be blocked by creatures with greater power. So it lets small things get in quick. So pretty cool in token decks, in blue-black ninjas in commander. Could be a thing in modern where if you have a good card on two that you can follow up a ragavan with and there's something bigger than a ragavan on the board it can't block (laughs) very curious to see how much ring action ends up in modern whenever your ring bearer attacks draw a card then discard a card is the next ability again can't help but think about how well this could all play with a ragavan Whenever your ring bearer <laughs> becomes blocked by a creature, that creature's controller sacrifices at the end of combat. Ragavan's not getting any worse as we go down the list here. Whenever your ring bearer deals combat damage to a player, each opponent loses three life. So basically, if you can go Ragavan and then get tempted by the ring and keep getting tempted by the ring, your opponents are in trouble. They also showed us Call of the Ring as an enchantment, one in a black. At the beginning of your upkeep, the ring tempts you. So this card is basically just going to put you through the dungeon and end up with these four abilities where you have a ring bearer. The second part of the card reads, whenever you choose a creature as your ring bearer, you may pay two life if you do draw a card. And keep in mind that you get to choose a new ring bearer whenever you get tempted. So on your upkeep, you can choose a new ring bearer if they killed the old one with this enchantment in play. And you're drawing cards every time you you get a new ring bearer. And then... Presumably those cards are going to set you up to drive your ring bearer home and continue to glean these advantages. They also showed us Soren the Necromancer. Three double black for a 4-4 avatar horror with menace. Whenever Soren the Necromancer attacks, exile target creature card from your graveyard, create a tapped and attacking token that's a copy of that card, except it's a 3-3 black wraith with menace. 
at the beginning of the next end step, exile that token unless Sauron is your ring bearer. So these things pair together well, obviously. Call of the Ring into into Sauron uh, looks pretty good. The overall that Sauron is the rare Sauron. I don't think we've seen right. the mythic version yet, which I assume they're sandbagging. The rare version looks a lot like a Draugr Necromancer, a Hidetsugu, a solid mid rangey value creature in black. You know, like if you got a shield with the the whispering one, and you can pull it out as a three three wraith with menace, those are going to be good times. Uh, Sauron certainly looks yeah. like I would probably try it in Moldrotha, where I've got lots of things to pull out of the yard. They're going to have ETBs. One of the other cards they showed off that looked solid to me for commander purposes was Lobelia Sackville Baggins. Two and a black for a 2-3 Flash Menace. When it enters the battlefield, exile target creature card from an opponent's graveyard that was put there from the battlefield this turn, then create X treasure tokens where X is the exiled card's power. So you, they Atali, you go for the throat, <laughs> and then you get seven treasure. That seems good. It looks very solid to me. This looks like, people were saying like, Dockside Extortionist, obviously much better. How close is Baggins to Dockside? I'd say it's a couple points down the scale for sure. But these kind of gain treasure advantage cards tend to be pretty good. Like if it's not if it's not Dockside, it's probably not far off Professional Facebreaker. And I haven't cut that from a list yet. Well, Facebreaker offers a, a different advantage. This gets its the advantages all in you know what died this turn that you're immediately going to exile and get a bunch of things from i'd be much happier with this card if it said the exile a card from a graveyard that was put there from anywhere this turn so if somebody doesn't entomb you could uh do lobelia in re- after that had resolved but because it has has to come from play she's also a single use item Unless you're, say, in black-white, and you can blink and flicker her or reanimate her regularly, in which case she gets a lot better. Again, over in Muldrotha or any recursive-based black deck, they showed us uh, Gandalf, Friend of the Shire, three and a blue for a 2-4 Avatar Wizard. Flash, you may cast sorcery spells as though they had Flash. An ability that has appeared on many cards and never quite seems to get there. The, The only card that really has made good use of this is Teferi, uh, Time Raveler. Whenever right. the ring tempts you, if you choose a creature other than Gandalf, Friend of the Shire, as your ring bearer, draw a card. Okay, so if you're in blue-black, Gandalf could draw some cards. Otherwise, not super exciting. Probably more likely to see significant play is Delighted Halfling, a fairly pushed mana creature. Green for a 1-2 Halfling Citizen. Taps for colorless mana and taps to add one mana of any color, but only on legendary spells, and Cavern of Souls effect, that spell can't be countered. This is an instant 100% inclusion rate in Joda. Yes, as a starting point. It's good in, uh, like, it Lots makes your things. commander uncounterable, for one thing, and it's a 1-2, which they've been doing more of for just a green mana, so it doesn't get caught up in random one damage things. It is going to be in a whole lot of commander decks it's just uh as good as any deck that's in green has a commander and will want to play this card because nothing makes people less happy than getting their commander countered yeah if you're in green and you have a very relatively low cast commander that you're going to cast five times a game this does some very solid work 
this is the version we're looking at here that's part of this tableau. Like, there's basically two sets of three cards that they showed us. One is Gandalf setting off fireworks, where you have Lobelia, Wizard Rockets, and Gandalf setting up a, a wide piece of art that, it, that the three cards together represent. And then the delighted halfling, Bilbo, retired burglar, and Frodo Baggins make the other one, which is Shire Folk partying. That pre-release version of Delighted Halfling could easily end up worth being worth money down the road. Especially because that's a rare. The other two in the uh, set are uncommons. Bilbo Retired Burglar is one blue-red for a 1-3 Halfling Rogue. When Bilbo enters or leaves the battlefield, the ring tempts you. Whenever Bilbo deals combat damage to a player, create a treasure token. So 1-3. Probably not going to deal a lot of combat damage. But you know, if you make him the ring bearer, then only things with one power can block. Well, you're probably playing it with that ninja lord that makes your one power and toughness creatures unblockable, right? That's fun too, yes. Frodo Baggins is a 1-3 green-white halfling scout. Whenever Frodo or another legendary creature enters the battlefield under your control, the ring tempts you. As long as Frodo is your ring bearer, it must be blocked if able. Frodo probably goes in Jota too, <laughs> just because any other legendary creature does the ring thing and forces them to engage with you on a whole different axis. I think the the ring's tempting mechanic, everything on there makes me want to uh, play it with Tusky. I think that'll be the, oh, the yeah, one that's, we see the, do yeah, the most work. I mean, that's nasty, but Tusky's mono green, right? So you don't, you're probably not going to get to use a lot of the cards. Well, I mean, you've got... There's going to be ways to tempt the ring in all colors. There's probably more in black, you're right. But if we get... Uh, if you're looking up... Things that I want to have the ring with, Toski is high, high, high on that list. Like Frodo Baggins has, you know, ring tempting and it's green-white. So we'll have some ways to do that with Toski. And uh, I I just, I'm going to try real hard to build, you know, the Squirrel of Destiny or something like that. They also revealed the face cards for the four commander decks associated with Commander Masters that are being, uh, that have a premium price tag associated with them. They showed a Sliver Grave Mother, a Wooburg Sliver, legendary, 6-6. Six, six. Legend rule does not apply to slivers you control. Each sliver card, creature card in your graveyard has Encore X, where X is its mana value. And for people that have forgotten, Encore means that you exile the card from the graveyard, and then for each opponent, you create a token that attacks this, that opponent this turn if able. So it's kind of like Myriad, but it comes from the yard, um, because they gain haste and you have to sack them at the end step. So... Whatever fat sliver is sitting in your yard can now be popped out and three of them attack your friends for a cost of five. The the nasty, especially nasty thing with slivers, of course, is that you're going to have a muscle sliver and a first strike sliver or a double strike sliver or whatever. Plus three, plus three sliver. And those slivers are going to come out swinging real hard. It's going to do some serious work and it's a, a worthy inclusion. I don't think we have a lot of slivers that make copies of other things so that's not as big a deal but you need to have this clause in case you're doing something wild where you're encoring one of the legendary slivers they do have me wondering whether they completely whiffed on the assumed sliver king because i think this grave mother art is the art people assumed was sliver king if there's no sliver king riot because that concept was just too good to pass I mean, uh, we, we usually get two commanders per deck, right? Three. There should be the the face card and two lieutenants. Right. So we'll get two Wooburg slivers. Maybe. Two new ones? Maybe. I mean, two more Wooburg slivers. I wouldn't be shocked if we got a reprint of 
one of the slivers as a face card, and the other decks, you know, that had different plans. I mean, so these other ones. No, are I think very... I think you're guaranteed that all the the three are almost always new cards. So almost, I, I think it's carrying all work there. I, well, I just can't, I said it almost wanting to say never, but I couldn't remember if that's a hundred percent true. I think it is, as far as I know. I think so too. So there might be two more Wooberg slivers coming. Well, no, I think I think the 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 fresh ground they could break is a three color sliver. They've never done that before, as far as I can recall. I can't think of one either. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we'll see how that goes. The, one of the other decks, the Planeswalker deck, is a Jeskai Planeswalker build or built around Commodore Guff, which is one Jeskai for a five loyalty Planeswalker that says, at the beginning of your end step, put a loyalty counter on another target Planeswalker you control. Plus one is create a one one red wizard creature token with tap, add red, spend this mana only to cast a Planeswalker. And then minus three is you draw X cards and Commodore Guff deals X damage to each opponent where X is the number of Planeswalkers you control. So this is the deck where you want all the Chandras and then you want a bunch of red sweepers and white sweepers and Cyclonic Rift. And then you want that new white card from Aftermath that says whenever they hit a Planeswalker, they can only get it down to one. Right. Uh, Diification? No. (laughs) Whatever it is. Yeah. So that's the deck is kind of built itself there. Uh, They also showed us Anakthea, Hand of Erebos, which is two Abzan for a 4-4 demigod with menace. Other enchantment creatures you control have menace. So puts the enchantment builds on a very aggro footing. And then whenever Anakthea enters the battlefield or attacks, exile up to one target non-aura enchantment card from your graveyard, create a token that's a copy of that card, except it's a 3-3 black zombie creature token. So it's kind of doing the same kind of stuff as Sauron was, um, except it's doing it to non-aura enchantments. So you basically can take a Smothering Tithe and bring it back as a 3-3 after they kill it. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. The Eldrazi face card is Zulodok. Void Gorger <laughs> for a five and a colorless seven four legendary Eldrazi. Colorless spells you cast from your hand with mana value seven or greater have cascade cascade. Because you know what all the Eldrazi really needed was extra things to happen when they're on the stack. I mean, yes, you're casting the spells. So you're going to get, uh, if you cast uh, the only uh, Emrakul that's legal, you might get your Ulamog cast trigger, and your Kozilek cast trigger. So party on with that. I'm looking forward to seeing what these Eldrazi do. And keep in mind it says colorless spells. So uh, the you know whole Devoid thing does come into play here. You called Eldrazi... No, I Eye of Ugin Masterpiece Foils or something during the initial announcement or shortly thereafter. Yes. This actually does back that play decently because this version... I mean, the Eldrazi deck was always going to be casting big things. But if you're running this as your commander, you absolutely want the ramp so you can start pulling this off as fast as possible. It's oh, kind of yeah. like when you're playing Two Maelstrom. mana less? Casting this for five? Ugh. It's like the Maelstrom Wanderer decks. Very, very similar. Like It's like ramp on turns two through six and then start doing things. Yeah, it does really... It's going to do some really ridiculous things. Let's see what's currently available. Right now, there is one near... No, I'm sorry, I've still got the four or more clicked, because I always look at that. Right now, in terms of near mint foils on TCG, you can still get a couple under 70, 
when my pick was at 45 was what was available at the time. And that was episode 369 back on April 27th. This is a very steep ramp and there's only 11 listings left. So I suspect you're you're getting there and will get and have gotten there. So it's going to be super funny to me if I actually managed to exit on these because I have some of these in the bad specs box from Eldrazi Winter that I got caught holding after making a bunch of money on others. But I think <laughs> I think it was like, I usually sell my priciest copies of something last. That's just the way I, you know... Uh, priciest in last out i guess is my accounting model so the interesting so the 150 dollars plus copies are the ones that are sitting around and if i get to exit on those after five or six years i'd be ecstatic i think you'll have your chance to at least make your money back the only other two cards they revealed for commander masters are personal tutor getting its first reprint in quite some time and selvala heart of the wilds um, getting a key reprint don't think i'm stuck holding either of those so Personal sh- Tutor was a portal card, if I remember correctly. The original version, yeah. And uh, I think that's it for the week in terms of big reveals. Where can folks find you online, my friend? You can find me online on Twitter at Word of Commander or my articles every week on mtgprice.com. Just a little plug for the math article that just went up. If you want to know exactly how rare everything is, I calculate that every single set. And I do the work so that you don't have to. We've also got Sloan joining us on the EDH beat, uh, writing fresh content. His first article went live last week, so people should go check that out. You guys can find me on Twitter at MGGCritic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Please use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at Cool Stuff, Inc. to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Oh my gosh, they did so much to us this week, James, but I can't wait for next week. Busy summer ahead as well. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you, all of you. And we will see you next week for another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank you.